My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Sadie Epstein-Fine and Makeda Zook, the editors of a collection called Spawning Generations, Rants and Reflections on Growing Up with LGBTQ Plus Parents from Demeter Press. There have always been people whose lives don't fit within dominant gender and sexual norms, and some of those people have always had children. That is, families where the parents exist somewhere within the LGBTQ spectrum of identities are nothing new. What is relatively new is children of LGBTQ parents having the space to be sufficiently open about their lives to begin coming together to collectively recognize the distinct set of experiences and challenges they face, and to discuss, perhaps to organize, and to claim shared identities. In North America, the most common term embraced by children of LGBTQ parents is queerspawn, a reclaiming in both a tongue-in-cheek and rebellious vein of both the word queer and the idea of being devil-spawn. That term is, of course, contested, and other people prefer to identify as gabies, or queerlings, or rainbow children, or something else entirely. Not surprisingly, the kinds of experiences that queer spawn have, of family, of growing up, of community, and of life in general, vary a great deal. This reflects the great variety within the LGBTQ identities of their parents, and their own experiences of racialization, class, gender, sexuality, ability, culture, religion, geographical region, and all the rest. Also very relevant is the era in which kids in queer and trans families grew up with the 1990s representing the beginning of a significant shift in safety and space to be open. At the same time, there are also enough commonalities to queerspawn experiences that there is growing interest in queerspawn-focused events, organizations, and publications. Spawning Generations collects 24 pieces written by queerspawn talking about different aspects of their lives, covering at least some of this breadth of experience. Contributors range from 9 years old to over 60. Many are based in North America, but not all. Though there are other books out there by and about Queer Spawn, this is the first anthology where all of the contributors and the editors are Queer Spawn themselves. Both Epstein Fine and Zook grew up in families with two moms in Toronto in the 1990s, and in fact both were quite involved from a young age in advocacy for queer and trans families. The pieces themselves range from the amusing, to the inspiring, to the heartbreaking. Themes of family and identity, of shame and pride and complicated ambivalence, of life and growth and loss, of community vitality and homophobic hostility, weave through the book. Perhaps the most pervasive recurrent theme is the complex experiences that many queer spawn have of belonging, or not, across different kinds of contexts and different moments of their lives. For Epstein, Fine, and Zook, one of the most important things they wanted to bring to their work as editors was to create a space in which Queerspawn could tell their stories in their ways. 
For all of the changes in the last three decades, queer and trans families continue to face hostility, judgment, and barriers, so many queer spawn feel pressure from the heterosexist and homophobic mainstream to tell only a narrow range of kinds of stories. This collection, in contrast, is a space in which queer spawn have been able to delve deeply into the messy complexity that is no less present in their lives and families than in any other. In so doing, the collection is able to make a substantial contribution to the growing public conversation among queer spawn, to give queer spawn new ways to see their lives reflected, and to be a springboard that will help a growing range of voices from the children in queer and trans families to articulate their own unique experiences. I speak with Epstein Fine and Zook about spawning generations, rants and reflections on growing up with LGBTQ parents. I'm Sadie Epstein Fine. I'm one of the co editors of Spawn Generations, Rants and Reflections on Growing Up with LGBTQ Parents. My name is Makeda Zook, and I am the other co editor of this collection called Spawning Generations. This is my first time co editing a book, as I think it's Sadie's first time co editing as well. The book Stories by Queer Spawn, so people who have LGBTQ the queer and trans parents, each chapter is a different person's story. The contributors range in age from nine years old to someone in their 60s. One of the intentions of the book was to really show that he existed for a really long time and we continue to exist and our communities continue to grow. I grew up with two moms, as did Makeda. And for me, working as a quote-unquote like professional queer spawn started for me when I was really young. Not that I didn't have a choice, but when I was younger, you know, queer parents had no rights. And so I started speaking about my family to advocate for, like, legalizing gay marriage, for making it possible for two women and later for parents of all different makeups to put their names on birth certificates. So I've been in lots of major newspapers, on the radio, on TV since I was really young. And so my trajectory as a queer spawn has kind of always been lame for me. I never really saw another option other than being an advocate because I saw it helping my family and other families gain the rights that, you know, everyone else I saw around me that they already had. Similarly, I also grew up with two lesbian moms and I've been speaking about my family and advocating for the rights of queer families for a long time, like ever since I can remember. Like I remember being on a news program when I was seven, I think. And also all of our moms, I would say, are very active and have always been very active in queer and trans communities and in advocacy and in making things better for not just queer and trans families, but for queer and trans movements and people in general. So I guess we like come by it, honestly. <laughs> and Sadie and I have known each other for a really long time too, since we were kids. This book particularly came about because Demeter Press, who published the book, they do a lot of work on mothering, parenting, sexuality, families, and feminist studies in general. And I think they recognize a gap within their own collection that they didn't have writings by queer spawn and by kids and adults from LGBTQ plus families. I was initially asked if I wanted to do it. And I was in my early 20s when I was asked and I was really overwhelmed. 
and they believed in me. And then when I brought Makeda on, they believed in Makeda. And we have learned how to be editors and we've learned how to publish a book. And here we are today. <laughs> yeah, we've learned on the fly with, with lots of support. Tell me a bit about the terminology, about the word queer spawn in particular, but also about why it's important to have a name for being children of LGBTQ plus parents. The word queer spawn is one of many. There's gaby, there's rainbow child, queerling. We've been trying to name ourselves since we've existed. And Stephen Lynch, who founded Collage, which is an organization for queer spawn, which is in the States. He founded the term. It's a reclamation of both the word queer and the word spawn. It reclaims the word queer and it reclaims this idea that the kids of queer and trans people are devil spawn. And so we're saying like, yeah, we are queer spawn and we're proud of it. However, it's that rebellion that so many of us love that makes some people uncomfortable. And so some people actually choose not to use the word queer spawn. We do cover this in our introduction because we found it really challenging to find a word that unified us as a community and that simultaneously made everybody happy. And so we have chosen for this collection to use the word queer spawn because we feel that this collection is rebellious in its nature, in the stories that it's telling, and in the way that we have allowed people to tell their stories. The term, although it is contested definitely within our communities and we're not a homogenous community, I think that it's really important for us to use a term like queer spawn in order to basically unite us and have a term to organize around. That's been super important because our communities are so disparate and spread out. And oftentimes, especially the older you get and the less at the forefront your parents are in your life, it's harder to necessarily find each other and there's power in finding each other. There's a diversity of queer spawn experiences and yet there's still this power that comes with saying, oh my gosh, like my family is similar, me too. It was a very intentional choice because also it's the term that most people know about in Canada and the States. From what we can gather, the term gaby is more widespread and popularized in Australia. But queer spawn is just a term that's been around more in North America and Canada, and so people know it more, and it's a term we can really come together around. And that being said, in recognizing that not everyone in the community feels the same way about the term queer spawn, we also have chapters in the anthology that also challenge that, too. What was your journey like of learning to be editors and learning to guide a book project like this? It was a huge undertaking, and I don't think we realized at first how big of an undertaking it was going to be. We both jumped in feet first, really excited to take on the project, and the authors in the book are really what kept us going. Their stories kept us going. Their excitement about the anthology kept us going. This wasn't our day job. So it's really a project that we've been working on consistently for three and a half years-ish on the side of our desk. We've learned a lot as editors and we really did grow into the role. So we did a general call out and we distributed it amongst our networks and we tried to make it go as far as we could. So we made sure it went out amongst the collage network in the state amongst networks here in Canada, like through the Ten Oaks Project and Parenting Network and organizations that focus on queer and trans families. And then once we started receiving submissions from contributors, I was really blown away by the amazing stories that people were pitching to us. 
And as we went through the process, really seeing authors' vulnerability and trust in us was huge and felt like a huge responsibility and one that I'm very humbled by and grateful for that the contributors trusted us so much with their stories. For me, it was a very delicate balance of remembering that, you know, so I edited 15 pieces primarily and Makeda edited 15 pieces that I had 15 live, real humans on the other side who were vulnerable and who had their hearts exposed and 15 very different people who had to be communicated with very differently and who received comments and feedback in very different ways. And it wasn't, you know, the, oh, there should be a comma here that I found the most challenging. It was the human aspect of it. That, for me, was my greatest responsibility, my greatest challenge, my greatest learning, and my greatest joy all at the same time. Give listeners a sense of the kinds of stories that are in the book. There's so many different ways of grouping these pieces. One way is through the decades. So there was definitely commonalities between people who were writing from different decades. Like if they were writing from the 50s, it looked really different from those who were writing in the 80s and then way more different in the 90s. It was really the 90s where the kids started having less shame around having queer and trans families. And there was less secrecy around that. Whereas in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, you get a lot of pieces about what hiding looked like and what shame looked like. And while it didn't surprise me, as someone who grew up in the 90s, it was humbling to read how my life, just being born 10, 20 years later, was so vastly different, even though we maybe both had two moms. What surprised me most was how vulnerable people were willing to go. So, like, we have pieces about abuse intersecting with queer families. We have pieces about death intersecting with queerness and how those two things are inseparable, which is something that before this I hadn't thought as deeply about, about how all of the experiences that we have in our lives as queer spot are inseparable from the fact that we have queer and trans parents. And like, I'm tearing up as I'm talking about this, because there are some pieces that I read that still make me cry because of how open hearted the writer was. For me, I think I was expecting to get more contributions from folks who had stories that followed a particular narrative, like a particular narrative that as queer spawn who have grown up as advocates for queer families, the kind of narrative that we have been subconsciously, I would say, like taught to adopt, which is this one of what we call in the introduction, the shame to triumph narrative. What that means for us is that there's this moment of shame about your family realizing that your family is different for a lot of Chris moms, not every Chris mom, but there's a theme of realizing your family's different and then feeling badly about that difference because of the homophobia and transphobia that exists within society. And then coming to a place later on of pride and that feeling of pride and coming to terms with how amazing your family is and being basically like, F you, my family is amazing and here is why. And that's the pride aspect of it. I was expecting, I think, more people's writing to follow that narrative. So the fact that people didn't is a very radical act. It's a very vulnerable and radical act because we're invested in our queer and trans families. Like we are incredibly invested in ensuring that our families have the same rights as everybody else's families. And not just we have the same rights in like a legal sense, but also that we're seen as real and valid and that we belong in society. And so because we're so invested in that, 
I think that despite all of the challenges that may happen in our families that happen in every other family, we feel this like protection, like we have to only show the quote unquote good parts of our family or like the TV worthy parts of our families in order to prove to the outside world that is inherently homophobic, transphobic, cisnormative, heteronormative, that we turned out quote unquote all right. One of the other themes that seemed to come up in your introduction and in many of the pieces was about the complicated experiences of belonging that many queer spawn have. Talk a little bit about that. I've kind of always seen it as queer spawn, like walk between two banks where in the middle flows one river. It's like on one bank is the queer community and on the other bank is the like straight community. Queer spawn often straddle those two sides. I mean, I'm not speaking personally because I also identify as queer, so I'm just fully on the queer side. (laughs) But queer spawn are raised within queer communities, right? It's like other cultural communities. You are raised going to those celebrations. You're raised marching in pride parades. You're raised going to lesbian potlucks or, you know, gay dance nights with your parents. And then suddenly you grow up and maybe your sexual orientation is heterosexual. And you're not attached to your parent, you know, leg anymore. And so you have to navigate that personal identity in the straight world while really feeling at home and belonging in the queer community that doesn't see you as one of them anymore because you're no longer that cute little kid in a rainbow shirt. You have a contributor who is a cis male who dates women, but who feels at one with the lesbian community because that's who he was raised by. And for him, that's a very natural identity. But of course, on the outside, he's perceived to be this cis male who doesn't belong in a room full of women. And so we are constantly trying to navigate those identities of like, when is it okay to just say we belong and for that to just be accepted? What kind of proof do we have to show that we belong in these communities that have raised us and brought us up to be the humans that we are today? And then I think on the flip side of that, Identities that other contributors talk about are like navigating between different cultural communities. So like all people, we're constantly navigating the intersections of our identities that sometimes and very often butt up against each other and just don't seem to go together. As kids being on panels, because we live in a heteronormative, this normative world, the assumption is always that your own identity is going to be one of being straight and cisgender. Or like that's how you're going to grow up to be. And so I think as kids were sort of thought of as like these cultural ambassadors almost who do, I think as kids feel like that sense of belonging in both worlds. But then if we do end up being heterosexual and cisgender and then we grow up, sometimes we can find that there's a lot of skepticism, I guess, that might come from queer communities. And yet those are the cultures that we might feel most at home in. And so I think dealing with feelings of pain and rejection when you're not accepted or you're looked at kind of skeptically from maybe queer and trans communities is hard because, yeah, it's a bit of a feeling of rejection. How did you each think about what you wanted to say in your own individual contributions to the volume? So for me... Halfway through the editing of the anthology, one of my moms died So that was a really pivotal moment in my life. That is a really pivotal moment in my life. So I took a bit of a break from the anthology at that time. Sadie took on a lot of work at that time when I needed to step back. 
And then, you know, I came back into it. I had written a piece, actually, that was very different before my mom had died. And I read it again after she passed, and it just didn't feel right anymore. It didn't resonate with me, that original piece that I had. And I had written a speech for my mom's memorial. And in that moment, when we were bringing all the pieces together for the final edit, I really felt like, you know what, I want something that speaks about me right now. Because I was a contributor to an anthology when I was in high school, and that piece of writing actually really focused on my own process coming out about having two moms and the struggles that I went through with that. And that piece was really important and impactful for me to publish at that time in my life when I was in grade 11. Now I'm in my early 30s, and for me right now, and especially when bringing the collection together, it was speaking about my mom's death and the impact that that had on me and how it relates to me growing up in a queer family and her queerness and how it's all connected. And that's what really spoke to me at this moment in time. So that's what I wanted to share with the world. My piece is kind of the opposite. It's a light, fun piece about my two comings out my coming out as queer spawn and my coming out as queer myself. And I purposefully wanted to make it almost like a romantic comedy piece because I spent so many years crying about being queer spawn and I've spent so many years being a passionate advocate. And I just wanted to like write a silly piece about being a teenager and what that feels like. And so I embraced that and dove into all those awkward, bubbly feelings of what it feels like to have your first love and your first crush and those butterflies. The scariest part for me was that the part about my coming out really focuses on my first queer love. Before I put it out into the world, I wanted to share it with them just to make sure that they felt comfortable. And it was kind of this beautiful experience. Just to share that with this person who now I have a deeper friendship with as an adult was like totally cool and scary and then wonderful at the same time. And yeah, it was just a really fun piece to write. So in the book and in this interview, you've talked about the diversity and breadth of queer spawn experiences. But even so... Given the fact that there's been such significant interest in this book, and given that there are organizations out there created by and for Queer Spawn, it seems like it might also be reasonable to talk about a set of shared or collective needs that Queer Spawn experience. Talk a bit about what those shared or collective needs of Queer Spawn might be. If there's one thing that this book and organizations that serve Queer Spawn specifically organize around, it is this need or desire that we all have, every human has, to belong. And I think that our anthology taps into that. We talk about that in the introduction quite a bit, that there's power in finding each other and that we have a diversity of experiences and of identities. And our book doesn't even showcase the range of those identities and experiences at all. And it's definitely a weakness, actually, of the anthology. And we really wanted this anthology to speak to not just people whose families were really out and proud. We wanted to speak to people who weren't out there marching in pride parades every year or whose families maybe were or weren't out in certain contexts. We wanted it to be a way of finding each other, I think. Mm -hmm. 
And I think that's what a lot of organizations that serve queer spawn also try to do. It's like a way of finding each other. And like, it's not just in big cultural touchstones, like, oh yeah, I've also been in the pride parade. It's like, there's this one piece where the contributor <laughs> describes eating yogurt with every childhood meal. And I was like, oh my God, me too. Is that a queer spawn thing? You know? and, and who knows, right? It's like, <laughs> oh, maybe there was a, a subsect of weird hippies 90s kid where we ate yogurt instead of sour cream on everything. <laughs> but it was like the recognition in like all the women I knew who had rat tails <laughs> and other people talking about their moms with rat tails and being dragged to like to take back the night marches when you didn't really want to go, but you knew this is a tradition every year. <laughs> and we found ourselves laughing for so long about those little things and also simultaneously crying. For me, it was actually those little things that were like, this is what makes up me as a human being that I've been craving to find for so long. You know, those little nuances of what it means to be raised by a community of women, what it means to be raised by all these radical activists. Or what it even means to be raised in community. That's another thing that I think is common across a diversity of queer spawn experiences and identities. You know, maybe not everyone is going to relate to the things that Sadie and I related to. Our moms were in a similar, very politicized feminist community in Toronto, right? So even if there are people who don't relate to the rat tails and the shake by the night (laughs) marches, I think that there is something bigger around being raised by community because a lot of queer and trans folks, when they come out, their biological families might reject them, might cut them off, or they might choose to leave and put some distance between them and their families of origin because it's not safe. You need to find chosen family. And that chosen family is also your community, your extended community. And so I think that that is a very common experience across a diversity of queer spawn. So what do you have planned in terms of promoting the book? We have a lot of plans. Right now, we're really focusing on the Toronto launch of the book. It's going to be happening during Pride Week as part of Glad Day Bookshop Pride programming. So right now, we're focused on the event at Glad Day on Monday, June 18th from 7 p.m. to 8.45 p.m. It's on Church Street. It's going to be awesome. Also, in the works, we started to talk about touring the book to cities where we have contributors and or where organizations exist that want to host us. So in the States, for instance, there's the Collage Network, which is really established, and many of our contributors are involved with Collage. And we have gotten a few invitations that are just really preliminary at this point, and we're trying to find the funding to help us do this. That would be the goal, would be to take the book on tour to places where we have contributors. And then just as much exposure as we can get in the media. And yeah, we really want people to read this book. You have been listening to my interview with Sadie Epstein-Fine and Makeda Zook, editors of Spawning Generations, Rants and Reflections on Growing Up with LGBTQ Plus Parents. To learn more about the book, go to DemeterPress.org and search for Spawning Generations. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to TalkingRadical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. 
On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week.